Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, please continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show is entitled Burial Site Preservation. And my special guest is Dr. Ryan Gray. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of New Orleans, specializing in historical archaeology. Before receiving his doctorate from the University of Chicago, Dr. Gray was employed for 10 years doing private sector work in cultural resource management with a focus on urban sites. His work examines race, segregation, auto-construction, and urban development in the post-emancipation South. And he will share with us just information and just talk to us about two cemeteries in New Orleans, the Holt Cemetery and the St. Peter Street Cemetery, and a reburial that took place over the weekend. So I'm just so happy to give a very warm welcome to my special guest, Dr. D. Ryan Gray. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to be with you tonight. Well, it's great to have you, and I am really excited about this discussion, especially because, and I don't know if I've even shared this with you about the Holt Cemetery, but I have family in that cemetery. My great-grandmother and her sister were buried in that cemetery, and unfortunately, my family have lost track of exactly where the burial site is located. So I'm hoping that you can just give us some historical information about the Holt Cemetery and then tell us what you've uncovered because I, I saw the images on Facebook and I saw images on a Save Out Cemetery website, 52 images, and this cemetery is there. It's right there in New Orleans. So please, I'm going to turn it over to you to help us understand what we need to know about the Holt Cemetery. Well, you know, Holt Cemetery is really remarkable. One of the first things that, that people often remark about when they see Holt is, is how little it looks like what they expect a New Orleans cemetery to, to look like. Uh, you know, New Orleans' best-known cemeteries are the, the above-ground cemeteries, like St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, you know, these so-called cities of the dead with the above-ground mausoleums. Um, Holt is located uh, in, a very, in a very inconspicuous location behind uh, Delgado College. Um, 
It's all below ground burials. And it is a place where many families take responsibility for the uh, for the marking and care and maintenance of, of the graves of family members there. And part of this is due to the, the, the kind of unique history of Holt in the city. Um, Holt is an enormous cemetery and it's very complex and it's very hard to keep up with, with individual graves there, which is why uh, so many people over time have lost track of where loved ones are, are interred there. And the project that I'll be talking about uh, a little bit later is one that we hope in the long run will actually help people uh, keep track of where loved ones are, are, are buried within Holt and provide a database uh, through which people can um, search and, and find burial records more easily for Holt. Because as far as I've been able to, to determine, there's nothing like that at this point in time, uh, despite the fact that there are by uh, rough estimates, some 50,000 people uh, buried within Holt. Wow, I didn't realize they had that many people buried at Holt. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Uh, Holt uh, it has come up for discussion a number of times over the years in the city uh, because Holt is has been overfilled for, for decades. Um, Holt was actually founded all the way back in 1879, and it may have actually been used as a, a burial ground even before that. Um, there are some burial records that appear to date even before the, the official founding date of the cemetery. When Holt was originally founded, uh, it was a replacement for a cemetery called the Locust Grove Cemetery, which was the cemetery uh, for the poor and, and for the poor and indigent, for people who, who couldn't provide for a, a burial otherwise. Um, and I, there's a question coming out right now, and of course there's a, a response to the 50,000 interments, a while. but was this uh, cemetery uh, affected at all by Hurricane Katrina? Uh, yes, it, it, it definitely was. Um, it was an area of town that, that actually that that actually flooded pretty badly, and part of the attention that has come to Holt now is indirectly due to this, um, because these days historic sites often get uh, only get assessed um, officially assessed. Uh, as to being eligible for the National Register of Historic Places as a result of uh, federal actions. FEMA came in and did so much work through the city after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, yes. As, re um, as a result of, of uh, FEMA plans, there was an official assessment of, of Holt Dunn uh, at the time that found that it was eligible for, for the National Register. But my own, Holt, my own interest in Holt goes back farther than that. Um, I, I've been here in the city since uh, 1996 and had been visiting for um, a good decade before that and, uh, and visited Holt, I think, for the first time in 1990 and was just immediately um, uh, fascinated by the, the array of, um, of, of grave markings of, of handmade headstones of unique ways of setting the curbs of graves and uh, it was just you know very obviously a, a special place and one that had uh, a lot of significance to the people who who still actively used it and maintained it well yes and i mean you mentioned and you said that it from what you are discovering that this was a replacement for the Locust Grove Cemetery, but was Locust Grove in the same area or another area? And they just said, okay, let's put it you know, in the area where it is right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Locust Grove was actually in another section of town entirely. Uh, Locust Grove was in 
a section of town um, in uptown New Orleans. Later, the Magnolia or CJP housing project was built around Locust Grove, and a school was built on top of uh, the Locust Grove Cemetery. Uh, it's actually another one of these kind of forgotten cemeteries in the city, and even now the city is trying to figure out what to do about the fact that there are still people interred at, at Locust Grove um, for decades. There was what was called the uh, the Tommy Lafon School, uh, set on top of the Locust Grove Cemetery, and it was only demolished after Hurricane Katrina. So now um, there are thousands of people interred in that site, and no one is quite sure what to do with the block uh, where that school is located. That's really interesting. I had no idea that uh, that is the same site that Tommy LaFon was located on. Now, back to the uh, Hulk Cemetery, you mentioned the handmade headstones. And I, I noticed that this cemetery now appears to be on some of the tour, tourist lists. When they come in, they want to see this uh, cemetery. And what kind of information are people being given about this, the historical nature of the cemetery? Well, we've, there are, are definitely people who are trying to, um, to make tour operators more informed about the, the nature of, of the, the, the burial practices that, that one sees at Holt. You know, there are, are certain things that are, are done at Holt to mark graves that to, to someone who's not really familiar with some of the burial traditions that, that, are, carried, that are maintained there, um, there are things that look, uh, that look you know, careless. And as a result, there have, over the years, been well-meaning people who've gone in and tried to, to clean up Holt and to make it look more like a, um, a regular cemetery, but who have unintentionally destroyed um, very significant parts of it. You know, one of the things that any attempt to talk about preserving Holt uh, has to take into account is the fact that it's, a, a still, it's still a very active burial space. You know, there are still, um, still interments there on a regular basis. And this is going on despite the fact that um, that it has been, you know, overfilled for decades. Um, many families maintain uh, very specific family plots there, and they go back and and reuse those plots over and over, which is kind of a tradition here and in many places. Um, but other times, whenever there's just what appears to be vacant ground. There are new graves dug there, and uh, you know whether or not there was anyone interred there previously. Um, because Holt was established as the city's pauper cemetery, you know it's Potter's Field. Uh, there was uh, um, the general rule was that if a grave was not maintained for a period of ten years then that plot of ground could be reused. And what happened in practice after the, the cemetery became more and more full is that you know, often that 10-year rule uh, is unclear if that was actually observed or not, just because there was such a need of, of burial space uh, in the city at that time. Yes. In, in particular, uh, in the period when Jim Crow segregation became increasingly entrenched in New Orleans, many of the um, African-American families who had been established in the city for longer and who had connections to, uh, to Catholic New Orleans had access to the various Catholic cemeteries. But many of the, um, the people who moved here after emancipation and who were Protestants and didn't have a long connection to a, a specific burial ground. You know, when, as burial grounds themselves became segregated in the period after, 
1900, 1910 or so. They had difficulties in finding places uh, where they could be buried, or their families had difficulty in finding them. So increasingly in the period after 1910, 1920 or so, um, Holt Cemetery became a very, uh, very significant as a, a de facto um, black burial place in Jim Crow, New Orleans. Very interesting. Now, there's a question here and uh, by Lucy. She's saying she thought most cemeteries were above ground in New Orleans because New Orleans is below sea level. So what can you tell us about the in-ground cemetery at Holt versus the other cemeteries throughout New Orleans? That's a really good question because you know most people do think of those above-ground cemeteries as being you know the the rule for New Orleans. Uh, the other cemetery, the New Orleans first cemetery, the St. Peter Street Cemetery that I'll be talking about uh, later this evening, I believe, actually was a below-ground cemetery, and in 1789 it was replaced by the city's first above-ground cemetery, St. Louis Cemetery Number One. This happened for both practical and cultural reasons. After, as people realized that below ground burials in the saturated uh, soils of New Orleans, as people realized that that just didn't work very well and that the closeness of the water table meant that um, people were prone to, to wash up after heavy rains, uh, the below ground burial, uh, the above ground burials, were uh, became thought of as a practical necessity. But then this also reflected the Spanish influence in the city. The era of above ground burials began in the Spanish colonial period, which runs in New Orleans from essentially 1769 to 1802, and it reflected a, a Southern European cultural tradition as well. That then got carried on um, you know, through the American period and you know, became the, the, the norm for the city. What people often don't know is that throughout this time, even as the above ground burials uh, were the most remarked upon, were the most noticed uh, aspect of, of um, the of the the burial landscape there were still below ground burials going on all throughout this time um, but you just didn't really hear about those as much or, or see those as much so most of the cemeteries even those with above ground burials also have below ground ones on those locations uh, those just you know uh, go unnoticed for the most part the Locust, Grove, the Locust Grove Cemetery, for instance, was all below-ground burials as well, uh, just as, as Holt is. Well, the, you know, there is a, you know, a, a kind of concern, though. If this, you know, you're speaking of the, the water level, and this is a below-ground cemetery, what happens when you have a large rain in New Orleans? Uh, yes. It, do you run the risk of seeing the the remains float up, or do they dig deep enough that they don't come back up? Or how is that reinforced? Uh, well, in at, at hold, uh, well, whenever there's a, a heavy rain and someone who's just buried below ground, you know, there, there is always the possibility of something uh, of washing up. Um, Part of the reason for some of the very specific ways of adorning graves at Holt, you know, covering them over with gravel, putting curbs around them, covering them over with uh, shell or other decorations, there's always a practical aspect to that too, and that it helps to to keep things uh, below ground and in place. But it's something that has been remarked upon at every below ground cemetery here in the city since the 1700s, 
you know, there's been the problem that when there's heavy rains, um, it makes it uh, very likely that graves are going to be disturbed. There's a famous account uh, where um, from the 19th century of uh, below ground burial that describes the grave diggers basically digging down until they get to the water table at about four or five feet down and then placing the coffin uh, into the water so that it's submerged in the water and then having someone basically stand on it to keep it submerged under the water until they can get enough soil on it to, to hold it down. And, and obviously, that's not a, very, not a very stable way for an interment to take place. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, we have a question coming out of the chat, and it, it relates to both cemeteries. Have you seen or are you aware of any burials of members of the United States Colored Troops? Uh, well, at Hope Cemetery, uh, actually, the, the best March graves are... Um, people who have done mil military service. And uh, I think a lot of this kind of an effort that funded commercially made gravestones for, for many veterans, you know, including uh, people of color at, at some point in the past. Um, so when you walk around Holt, you know, one of the first things that, that you notice is how many how many uh, veterans there are uh, in the cemetery and what we hope to do in the larger project that I'm working on is to actually do an inventory of all of the graves within Holt, uh, including photo documentation and recording any associated names that we have to go with each grave so that we can actually say well, we know that there are, you know, um, this many people who are veterans of World War One, or of World War Two, or of, you know, or who have this type of grave marker or anything else. Uh, as of this point, there's nothing like that for Holt, as far as I'm aware. And when you say we, uh, is this a, a group of people that have this as part of a plan and, and help us understand how will you go about identifying where all of the interments have taken place since you mentioned about 50,000 people. That's a lot of people. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, well, the, the project that I'm, that I'm working on right now and that I'm working on uh, getting funded as a, a, a long-term project is something that um, the idea for it came up in discussions that I had with uh, Dr. Shannon Dowdy from the University of Chicago, who, um, who I studied with at, at the University of Chicago. Uh, she and I had both been interested in Holt for a long time, and she had done some work with Save Our Cemeteries, a local cemetery preservation group uh, on trying to raise money to help um, preserve Holt. And in discussions, we came up with this idea to go through and thematically photograph and fill out forms recording every aspect that we could of each individual grave plot at Holt. And we had to come to terms with the fact that even if there are, you know, some 50,000 people buried there, all that we can really document to start out with uh, are the graves that we can see some sort of surface expression to um, mm -hmm. right now. So the idea that, that I'm uh, that I'm attempting to move forward with, and that uh, other people and the the part of anthropology at UNO uh, and um, some other partners are, are helping me with now is to do a full survey of Holt, collect information for every plot of ground within Holt, information that will include uh, data on how the grave is marked, 
how the burial there is memorialized, what kind of curb settings are there, what kind of gravestone is there, and any names that are associated with the grave. Mm-hmm. Also do photographs of that. And then to put that into a, uh, a an interactive map, uh, a GIS map, a geographic information system, so that people can search by any of those criteria, by any of the, the data points that are, are recorded in the survey, and use that to identify individual graves within Holt. Then the, the larger goal is to make that the basis of an online community where people can share their own knowledge about different grave plots and about who's buried there, about their, about their family, uh, about family they're trying to find, and to have this interactive map be the basis uh, or be a, a, a foundation for people to um, communicate with one another about Holt. And there's a, um, a website that's recently been uh, begun for the uh, Hart Island Pauper Cemetery in New York that uh, provides a, a an interesting model of something that, you know, that that we can potentially draw from in trying to do this. Mm-hmm. So, so the hope is that we can have something uh, that people who have friends and family, uh, loved ones who are interred within Holt, something that they can uh, actively use for finding those graves and for keeping track of those graves, something that's also of use to genealogical researchers, and something that's also of use to people doing academic research on um, mortuary and grave decoration traditions, um, because there's lots of people who've looked at Holt and who have speculated on the significance of some of the different ways of marking and decorating graves, but there aren't many people who've uh, really systematically studied it. And mm-hmm. just because there's no systematic recording of what's happening there uh, that has happened in the past. Well, is there uh, some kind of database already of the um, just the obituaries that you can find online where individuals have been interred at that cemetery, is that kind of a nice kickoff point or is it better as you are proposing to go to the sites where you can see that a burial has taken place? Well, because we're wanting to begin to use as our starting point, the community that, um, that holds Holt as important to them in the present day. You know, that's why we're starting with, with what's there now. And then we can work on integrating some of the, the documentary records um, into, the, into the database a little bit better. We mm-hmm. know that before a certain point, the records for Holt are not very precise as to as to where specific people are, are interred. Um, for instance, you know the most famous person who is buried in Holt Cemetery is the uh, jazz musician Buddy Bolden. You know, Buddy Bolden is often considered the the, the father of the New Orleans style of, of jazz and really the uh, almost the, the, the innovator. Of, of the New Orleans genre of, of jazz. And um, he was institutionalized and died uh, pretty much broke in this institution and was brought back to the cemetery and buried in the pauper cemetery. Um, and there's no record of exactly where his grave in the cemetery is. People have uh, tried and tried to track down exactly where he might be buried, and there's 
been no success in that. Um, so now there's a monument to Buddy Bolden that is is in the cemetery, but there's little chance of actually being able to pin down, uh, you know, where he was buried. Right, and there's a comment coming out of the chat that uh, they think there's a movie that has been uh, made about Buddy Bolden, and they believe that it'll be released this year. Have you heard about that? Uh, I I don't know that one. There's been you know there's been a, a couple of of really good books about Buddy Bolden to come out, and it would not surprise me at all, especially given how many movies are being made in New Orleans these days, that there's a, a, a movie coming out. Um, you know, that the both nonfiction books uh, about him, and then there's the uh, uh, the book Coming Through Slaughter, which is um, by Odate, the, the same person who wrote uh, the, the English Patient. Uh, mm-hmm. Coming Through Slaughter was, uh, I believe, his first book, and is, is a pretty amazing evocation of the, the era of, of Bolden. But uh, but I'm, I'm not so up on what movies are coming out, but yeah, it, it makes perfect sense to me because it's a fascinating story of his life. Yes, yes. Well, we actually have a question coming out on the line, and after we take this question, we will go on... Um, a quick break. Uh, area code 504, you're live. Do you have a question or a comment? Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Bernice, for this show. Uh, my question to the uh, <clears throat> guest is, how efficient should the records of the 1940s and 50s be for Holt in order for the persons at the office to find the plot? Now, I do understand that after so many years, those plots may have been reused if it was not kept up, but should uh, the people in the office be able to find the plot if you give them a name for persons buried in the 40s and 50s? And the next question is, what work have you done dealing with the former Gerard Street Cemetery, which exists around the Superdome in New Orleans? And I continue to listen. Thank you. Oh. Yes, uh, th- thank you very much for for calling in. Uh, you know, the for the '40s and '50s, the Sexton's records are are pretty detailed. However, as far as I know, the the only way to track those down would be to go in oneself and find that find the the death record in the Sexton's records. And then to bring that back to the, uh, you know, the city's, to the city's division of cemeteries, and the whether or not the sections of the cemetery match up, the ones that are marked now and that are recorded now match up with the 40s and 50s. It's a little bit iffy that they, they they should match up. So it should, in theory, be possible to track down after World War II. Okay, we're we're messing up with the sound a little. Not sure what's going on, but we also have a question coming out of the chat. It's the same question that the caller just called in about, but it's about Lafayette Number Two. You know, the there are a number of other cemeteries around the city that are have been built over at different times. You know, like the like the Gerard Street Cemetery in particular uh, is probably the most most well known one that has been built over because there's such a tradition in the city uh, of the Superdome being on top of it. Um, the Superdome is actually not directly on top of it, but one of the parking garages of the Superdome is um, is superimposed over it. One of the things that, that that one has to realize is that up until relatively recently, this reuse of urban space uh, was actually pretty common in cities. You know, as cities grew around, as cities grew around cemeteries. Um, they often reclaim that space, and often 
people weren't that worried about actually making sure that everyone was moved uh, from from those places. The Gerard Street Cemetery, I haven't done that much research on it specifically, um, just because it's pretty safely um, under quite a bit of construction at this point. And, uh, and you know, the Holt and, between Holt and St. Peter Street and some of my other research in the city, uh, I've, I've got my, my hands full with, with those for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a break and just continue this discussion and just just take a quick break, okay? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Ryan Gray share with us information about one cemetery, the Holt Cemetery in New Orleans, and we're going to hear more about another cemetery, the St. Peter's Cemetery. So, Brian, back to you so that you could help us understand about the St. Peter's Cemetery. And I can tell you, we have seen a lot of publicity and information on Facebook, in the newspaper about the reinterment. So please take us through the whole history of this cemetery in New Orleans. Well, thank you. Um the St. Peter Street Cemetery is is unique in New Orleans in, in, in a number of ways. It was the city's first formal cemetery. Uh, we don't know exactly what year it was founded, but we know that it was in place by 1724 at latest. And it may have been in place even before that. And, you know, the city was only founded in 1718. So, you know, that's pretty soon after its founding it was there. It was used all the way up until at least 1789. Uh, so it was used all through the French era and well into the Spanish period in New Orleans. Uh, it was still reused occasionally into the 1790s when St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, uh, the cemetery that was founded to replace it, would periodically flood. Uh, despite this fact, the St. Peter Street Cemetery was divided into lots and auctioned off uh, beginning in 1800. And in the 1810s, the 1820s, the entire block was developed with uh, residences and businesses. And the St. Peter Street Cemetery was more or less forgotten. Uh, and to give your listeners who may not be familiar with the city, an idea of, of where it is. Uh, this is within the French Quarter, uh, a block that is today bounded by St. Peter and Toulouse Streets and North Rampart and Burgundy Streets. Um, 
is the location of a, a large hotel, the Maison Dupuis Hotel. It's the same block that used to be the location of uh, Mama Rose's Pizza, um, a, a famous pizza place in the French Quarter. All of these things were built over the, the St. Peter's Street site. People began to rediscover the St. Peter's Street Cemetery uh, as early as the 1970s. Uh, I found one newspaper article from 1972 where uh, during construction at the Maison Dupuis Hotel, a, a bottle hunter who had actually trespassed in the construction site found four coffins. And at the time, people had no idea what they were from, but they eventually figured out that this was from the Colonial Cemetery. In 1984, there was somewhat bigger of a splash made when there was a construction project uh, going on, and the construction project was literally digging through um, hundreds of burials from the colonial era. Uh, eventually, after some tense negotiations, archaeologists from LSU were allowed to come in and salvage what they could of the, the burials that had been disturbed, and they recovered the remains of 29 people in 1984, um, most of whom appeared to be people of, of African descent. And the forensics team at the time interpreted many of them as being, many of the remains as being those of people who were enslaved in their lives. Uh, some of the people had injuries that appeared to relate to um, to having been shackled during their life. So it was really a, a dramatic thing, and it really got people's attention for a while. And then still nothing happened uh, to really protect the cemetery. Mm -hmm. My own involvement with the St. Peter Street Cemetery began back in 2011. Uh, Again, Shannon Dowdy, with whom I was working at the time, she was contacted by a property owner who had just bought a property on that block and was getting ready to build a swimming pool. And he saw some of the newspaper articles from 1984 and was concerned that when he built a swimming pool, he might hit human remains. So he invited us in to come in and dig a, a test unit just uh, a, a rectangular archaeological excavation unit just to see if there was anything intact where his swimming pool was going in. Shannon at the time was uh, was busy in Chicago, and so she left it to me. That was around the time that I was starting at UNO, and uh, I began this project and got about four and a half feet down and sure enough, encountered the first coffin uh, just beneath the water table. This led to more negotiations. Uh, these days, before we disinter human remains, uh, we try to rule out any other possibility. So we had some meetings with the state attorney general's office, uh, with the division of archeology span and with the property owner and we eventually came to a compromise where he would shift the design of the, the pool a little bit to impact the minimum number of human remains. And we would just remove the people that we had to to keep them out of the way of the uh, disturbance from the construction of the swimming pool. We ended up excavating the remains of 15 individuals. We documented that there were many more just within a, a, a 10 foot by 20 foot area. And extrapolating out from that, we believe that there are as many as eight to 10,000 people still buried on that lot beneath buildings, beneath businesses, beneath foundations, um, basically from historical records, we know that everyone in the city 
pretty much was buried in that cemetery in that time. So not just people of African descent, uh, but people of you know European descent, people of Native American descent. We know that there was a a chief of the Choctaw who was buried within the cemetery in 1775. Both people who were enslaved and free. Uh, it was a cross section of the city in the colonial period, and uh, we're hoping that as a result of the reburial event that we had happen this past Saturday, we can really get people's attention about the fact that there's so little to protect uh, this site, which is is really kind of unique in the city's history. Yes, and yes, it's unique, and it's, it's just amazing. Eight to ten thousand are still on the lot, and you were able, able to what what you were able to to bring out bring out fifteen I guess uh, I'm getting a little bit of uh, distortion in the audio, but uh, yes, we, we were able to recover uh, the remains of um, fifteen people, uh, all ages. Uh, interestingly, again, just as in 1984, most of the individuals uh, whose remains we recovered appeared to be of either African or of mixed African and Native American ancestry. And, and how did you, how did you determine that? We worked in partnership with... Um, a local cultural resource management company called EarthSearch, and with the uh, LSU Faces Forensics Lab uh, based out of Baton Rouge. And each individual set of remains, after we recovered them, uh, they would go back to the, the LSU Faces Lab uh, where they would be x-rayed, and then they would begin the painstaking process of uh, exposing the human remains in the lab and you know piecing back any of the, the piecing back together any of the pieces of bone that they could uh, and then doing determinations of ancestry as they would for a uh, contemporary person. Now this is a little bit tricky when we begin to apply that to people from, you know, 250 years ago, because the categories by which um, by which race w was uh, assigned in the 18th century didn't really match up to the exact ones uh, that that are used now. Um, but we think there's a convergence of evidence that in between items that these people were interred with between the clues from the forensics lab and between just how the we think the cemetery itself is arranged, we think that it's very likely that these people were of, were of um, predominantly of African descent. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us how did your group move from uh, removing the remains and then deciding on a reinterment and the event that took place last Saturday? Um, that, that's a, a good question. And it's funny, the, the event that happened on Saturday really became a community-driven event. Um, what happened is when we when we received the permit from the state to do the excavation, part of the conditions of that permit was that uh, all of the individuals would be reinterred with anything that they were buried with. You know, everything that was part of an individual burial would end up going back into the ground with that person they, as a you know respectful way of, of returning uh, that person, you know, to the to the to sacred ground, um, we initially came up with a plan with the archdiocese, uh, who gave us permission to use a 
a vault in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 for the reinterment. The one thing that we knew about all of the burials within the St. Peter Street site is that all of the people who were interred there would have been baptized as Catholic uh, because anyone who wasn't baptized had to be buried outside of the, the city cemetery at that time. So it made sense to, to use a cemetery that was still, you know, consecrated ground uh, out of respect to the, the, the people whose remains we were handling. Uh-huh. And, and um, it just felt appropriate that we should do something to recognize uh, that we were, that this whole thing was happening. You know, the, what we eventually found out was that the skeletal material that had been recovered in 1984 had been reinterred in this, this vault in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, but nothing had really been done to mark that. You know, it had been just a, a quiet thing. No one, it wasn't reported on. No one really knew about it. It was hard to find out where, the, where those people had ended up. So I reached out to a, a couple of people to ask them to um, become involved in, in this reinterment effort. Uh, I went to um, St. Augustine Catholic Church, which is a, a church in the Treme neighborhood uh, in New Orleans, and it has a, a long history uh, of being a, a, a very prominent church with New Orleans African-American community, its African-American Catholic community. And uh, St. Augustine was interested in hosting a memorial mass. Um, then we began to reach out to other people. Uh, we began working with the um, Umoja Committee, which is a local uh, cult group based in the Treme. Uh, actually, I think their office is not in the Treme, but the members are uh, involved in, um, in in the Treme. And they do a, a, a celebration of the African-American child every year. They thought that this event was in fitting, uh, in keeping with their goals. And so they began to plan a celebration of... Um, of remembering and healing uh, as part of this whole event. We also worked with the New Orleans Museum of Art and organizers of the Congo Across the Waters exhibition, uh, which is in New Orleans right now, uh, since we ended up figuring out that at least a couple of the individuals uh, whose remains we were dealing with were very likely of Central African or Congolese descent um, based on some some of the archaeological data. Uh, and so we had invaluable assistance from them. And between the Archdiocese of New Orleans and the Umoja Committee and uh, Ms. Sabrina Montana, uh, who was my, my main contact with Umoja, uh, between them and the city's Office of Cultural Economy. Um, all these people got together and, and really worked together to, to make this event happen. Well, this sounds like such a, a wonderful opportunity to bring the culture back together and to celebrate what needed to be celebrated, and that was the reinterment of individuals that, as you have mentioned, with African descent. And it's it's just great to know that you were involved in this project and that the community was engaged in this project also. Now, will some kind of database be developed which is similar to the other database you're speaking of earlier? Well, what I think is, well, the same sort of thing is never going to be practical for the St. Peter Street Cemetery, mm -hmm. um, just because we have no, right now there's still not even a marker on that block recognizing that that block was the the St. Peter Street site. 
we were able to, uh, with the archdiocese, to um, have a marker placed on the tomb where the, the bodies were reinterred mm-hmm. that recognizes the St. Peter Street Cemetery. But really, our next step is trying to get the block itself um, where, you know, eight to 10,000 people are still buried, uh, recognized as, as being a, a cemetery uh, publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, I am working on compiling all of the information that I can about uh, who's buried in the St. Peter Street Cemetery. The problem is that the records from the 18th century are fragmentary. Uh, a number of the records of the St. Louis Cathedral or the St. Louis Church were burned in the 1788 fire that destroyed so much of New Orleans. And so we have a big gap in the records of the, the people who were buried at St. Peter Street. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I've still been working on compiling what I can. Um, previously, some of the people who have recorded some of those records have been focused only on genealogy and so have skipped the uh, interment records that don't have identifiers of, um, of last names, which is, of course, most of the people uh, who were enslaved in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to do a more complete assessment of who's buried in the St. Peter Street Cemetery by just going through and systematically recording everyone, whether or not they're listed with a, a last name or any name at all, mm-hmm. we're recording everything we can from those records. But it's a, a, a slow process. The Archdiocese, which maintains the archives, has been uh, of invaluable assistance there. And I'm sure I'll be working with them a lot in the future. Uh, Dr. Dr. Loomis, who is uh, the head of the Archdiocese and Archives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, suppose, I mean, we have a, a lot of listeners to, tonight, and I'm just wondering, um, what would you recommend for others who are listening from other parts of the United States that may uncover uh, a grave site that perhaps has historical significance to a community. What what should they do, or what can they do? Well, you know the the laws vary some state to state. Uh, the the first thing I would recommend that they do is make sure that that cemetery is known to the local to that state's uh, State Historic Preservation Office. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all State Historic Preservation Offices are supposed to keep, you know, a, um, to keep a register of all of the, uh, all of the sites, all of the archeological sites and cemetery sites uh, within that state. Um, and sometimes, you know, it, it, it sounds a lot easier than, than it is. It's very easy for small cemeteries, family plots, things like that to go uh, unrecorded. So after making sure that it's actually recorded, uh, then documentation that doesn't disturb the cemetery, it can uh-huh. take place on a, a grassroots level. You know, you don't have to be a professional to go out and, do some of the things that we're doing at Holt. You know, at Holt, we're not digging up anything. We're not disturbing anything. Uh, when I bring people out to do the, uh, the documentation effort with me, I tell them not even to, to move anything. You know, they're supposed to be documenting things in place as they are at that moment because, mm-hmm. they're, because we don't make assumptions about... Uh, what people wanted the grave to look like or, you know, how they wanted grave, the goods on the grave to be arranged. And anyone can go out with a camera and take photographs and record what they see and 
try to make that information available to the to the public. You know, well, that's right. Well, we have two comments. Yes. Well, we have two comments coming out of the chat. One is from True, and she's saying, thank you, Ryan, for being so delicate and thoughtful about these lost ones. Without those archaeologists, it wouldn't be possible. And she went on to say they are part of genealogy in their own right. And then Karen has made a comment saying she would imagine that many of uh, the ancestor cemeteries are on private property. And if that is the case, how would you go about documenting and taking photos if it's on private property? That's a, a good question. And it's one that, you know, is it relates to the, the St. Peter Street site because honestly, if the property owner had not invited us in, if he had just gone ahead with building his swimming pool, chances are no one would have ever, would have ever known that he was digging through graves there. The the tool that they were going to use for that construction was, you know, what's called a ditch witch, which uh, if you've ever seen one, it's like a little conveyor belt that just churns up the soil. Oh yes, and yes. It would have left no trace of, you know, what we saw archaeologically. Uh, most in most states, burial sites, even if they're own private property, are supposed to be protected. However, it is very difficult for <coughs> excuse me for state agencies to protect those sites if they're own private property. Uh, I think the the thing that we can do if we're worried about a site that is on private property, if we're concerned about its preservation, is to just be vigilant and be aware. And in most states, anything that impacts human remains or disturbs human remains is something that you know should be brought to the attention of the uh, local coroner's office or possibly own up the line to the, um, the State Historic Preservation Office uh, or the, the, the State Attorney General's Office, uh, depending on how jurisdiction in that state works. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but your, your, your listener is, is, is correct. Uh, how to preserve sites that are on private property in a place where private property rights are often thought to trump everything else. You know, it, it, it's definitely a challenge and it's one that there's no simple solution to. Right, and then we have a question for you. Uh, there's a cemetery in Texas called the Love Cemetery and it's going through, uh, I guess, a similar process that you went through with China Gallon. And they just wanted to know if you were familiar with her project. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one offhand, but I'm, I'm definitely going to go look it up now. Uh, there are, I'm sure there are other similar projects going on elsewhere, and um, because you know there, the recording burial places as ancestral places as places of cultural significance. I mean, it's something that um, that is important to to uh, uh, to many people and uh, I'm, I'm really happy to, to hear about work that I'm not aware of already so so thank you very much to uh, to your listener for bringing that one to my attention. okay well believe it or not we're at the end of the show <laughs> and I just want to thank you so much for just sharing with us just this wonderful information and that, you know, it, helping us just develop the awareness that we need when we're looking at sites, even if you're driving and you see a tombstone sticking up, you have to kind of ask the question, what else is there? And, and has it been documented? And can a group, a, a small grassroots group, start taking photos and at least documenting what's there? And, and maybe contact somebody like you. 
uh, to, to help us. Maybe they're all over the United States. Of course, they are all over the United States. And so we certainly need to be sensitive to what's out there. So I just want to say thank you so very much. And thank you, everyone else, for joining the show tonight. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Well, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and at Virginia's Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. And also please remember to register for the Legacy Family Tree webinar tomorrow where I will be speaking on the United States Color Tree Widow's Pensions Tell the Story. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Blog Talk Radio, this show is sponsored by your host, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday, where I will have Dr. Juanita Patience Moss discuss her book, Forgotten Black Soldiers Who Served in White Regiments During the Civil War. Good night, everyone. Thank you so much for joining the show. Good night. Good night.